Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we delve into the travels of Sir Michael Palin, a Monty Python star who has gone on to establish himself as a talented actor, writer and presenter. He joins host Saeed Khan to discuss his latest journey to Iraq, where he got a sense of what life is like in a region of the world that has witnessed bloodshed and destruction. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode delves into his 1,000-mile odyssey, captured with grace in his new book, Into Iraq. I think I'll go off now. I won't get, get better than that. If you go off now, I don't get out alive. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous movie from the 90s uh, called Backdraft and says, if you go, we go. So, so uh, good afternoon, uh, Bradford, and uh, thank you for uh, investing some of your Saturday uh, in this uh, uh, event, which I'm sure you will enjoy. Uh, not as much as I, I, prom I promise you that. Uh, Sir Michael Palin, once again. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so I know some of you uh, uh, probably know him from making some cameos in, in TV shows and movies, but uh, before we get to that, uh, uh, I thought what we would do is, is talk about uh, another aspect and facet of, of a fascinating man, and that is his prolific authorship. Uh, Michael Palin into Iraq, uh, which is your latest uh, book, your latest travel journal, if you will, and then uh, Michael Palin North Korea Journal, which uh, looks like you were inspired by some of the posters that you might have seen there. Well, yes, the art director was. I thought they'd <laughs> get me to look like some of the people on the uh, North Korean posters, um, which is not necessarily a good thing, especially on a driver's license. You're Kim Jong-un? No, 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 Michael. Michael Jong-un. That has a nice ring to it. Uh, I, I don't know if then you're in the line of succession, but we'll get to that when we talk about North Korea. So let's start with, with Iraq. Um, uh, I think uh, by no coincidence, uh, it's the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, and uh, here you, uh, you took a trip from the north of Iraq uh, down to the south. What was, your, what was your motivation to pick Iraq as a, as a destination country? Well, it was challenging, a bit like North Korea, and not many people go there, certainly for sort of tourist visits or anything like that. And yet, it's a country of, of you know, enormous long history. Um, all these biblical sites there, Nineveh and Babylon and places like that. So there was the long history and yet this very short history of violence in the present day, you'd think of all this, the civilization of Iraq ended up in these um, vicious wars over the last sort of 20 or 30 years. And I, I think that what happens with, with a country like that, you, you are in the news as long as you're in the news. And then suddenly the war seems to be over and everybody goes away and nobody really knows what's happening in the country. And I thought that's the time to go and see the country and actually find out what effect it's had on the people. How do people 
survive what's happened in Iraq over the last 30 or 40 years? And how does the country still function? What are the people thinking about? And you know, uh, what, what is the morale in the country like? What does the country itself look like? So all those, all those questions I sort of wanted to, to answer. And I thought it was time to visit Iraq um, because, as I say, because of its place in the news and the way it suddenly fades out of the news. Well, you started your journey in, uh, in Turkey, uh, which I think in and of itself is, is important because uh, Iraq uh, is essentially three provinces of the former Ottoman Empire fused together uh, after uh, 1920. And uh, you start off in uh, the, the so-called mothership of the former uh, Ottoman uh, Empire, yeah. uh, Turkey. Uh, you see through the lens of a tremendous amount of diversity when it comes to religious an ethnic identity, um, you're, you're looking at Muslims, and yet you switch the kaleidoscope and then you're looking at Kurds. And many of these identities um, aren't always well aligned. No, I mean, I think really Iraq was sort of cobbled together, as you intimated there, it was three different countries. There was, there was the Kurdish part of Iraq and then central Iraq and then uh, there was Mosul and I can't remember Baghdad. Those were the three provinces that the, the British in their wisdom thought they would unite together in a country called Iraq so they could basically use the oil <laughs> and make a lot of money out of it. Um, and and, and they, were, they were not that harmonious, these three groups, and they're, they're not particularly harmonious now. But it's, it's, it's very interesting because, I mean, I, I, I go on these journeys to learn. I don't quite know everything about um, Islam and the Muslim religion and all that, but you find out, you know, there are the difference, difference between the Shia and the Sunni. Um, that was very, very strong in, um, in Iraq, especially in the, the southern part of Iraq, basically is run by, by Shia militias still, um, and heavily influenced by Iran next door, whereas the, the north is more, uh, or the, certainly the north, West, or sort of the Sunni heartlands. And that still seems to matter quite a lot to how people view each other. And, and, and we saw some evidence of, of both sides feeling very, very strongly about something. Um, so you go from one area that has recently suffered trauma, meaning Eastern Turkey, with of course the devastation of the earthquakes, uh, right into Mosul and the north of, uh, of Iraq. Yeah. Uh, so uh, sort of at the beginning. Not now, I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> My cousin is in town for a bit. <laughs> Should we have him up here? Um, no, no, he's very okay. boring. <laughs> oh, oh, hees that cousin. <laughs> okay, I've, I've, I've got that cousin too. <laughs> uh, um, you, uh, you, you come into yep, Mosul, uh, yeah. which, is, which is in the north, which yeah. is uh, uh, sort of the Kurdish area, semi-autonomous. Uh, but you also uh, are witness to the devastation uh, wrought by ISIS. Yeah. I mean, M Mosul was interesting. It was the first big city we went to. Um, and, and, of course, part of our journey was we were following the Tigris River. And one of the great ironies of Iraq at the moment is they've got these two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, the rivers that made Mesopotamia so rich and so fertile. Um, are now virtually dried up in, in Iraq, so they've got their major crisis at the moment, is drought. Anyway, we end up, we go to Mosul first of all, and um, 
Mosul was occupied by ISIL, as you know, um, for about four years. And, you know, what, what you could see there was just something which I, I, I didn't, I, I mean, it's totally impossible to sort of uh, get your head around, really, that in those four years, a lot of the sort of ordinary freedoms that people would have expected, just the freedom to listen to music, for instance, to wear certain clothes, to eat certain food, to meet for a drink, all those were sort of banned. So we, we met a couple of young men, really nice guys, bright, intelligent, uh, and they had lived through this, where if you'd been found with a smartphone, you could have had your hand cut off, or you could have just been executed. And I, you know, these are these are sort of young guys that, that are very similar to the way I was when I was 21, 22, and yet they had to live Oh, wait a minute, you, you had a smartphone when you were 21, 22? <laughs> <laughs> Good, he's cr that's why he does this job, you know. He's, no. Cheers. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, it's just our, our ambitions and all that and what you have. So, uh, you've got these people having their sort of lives sort of truncated for four years, and then suddenly it all it go, begins to go away. But also the city itself, the old city of Mosul, which must have been very beautiful, just absolutely flattened, and there were people still living in the rubble of the city. Um, and we, we walked through and we, we filmed um, just these uh, houses that had sort of collapsed. Uh, not all of them, one, one or two of them were still occupied. And I, I, I mean, it was so lowering, the whole experience, until suddenly I met these children there. And they cheered me up a bit. They, you know, they sort of they had catapults and things like that. And I was just, I was almost moved to tears by what I'd seen there. And they said, oh, come on, you know. I realized these children, probably not born, you know, before sort of uh, 2017 or 2018, the ISIS, they've not known any other life like that. And for them, you know, the old, the, the, the old buildings and, and the collapsed buildings were a sort of playground. And they were allowed a lot of freedom, really. And, you know, no one stopped them sort of wandering around. And in some of the houses, their families were still there. So that was a, uh, that was a surprise. I thought this would just be, you, you know, a, a very, very grim place uh, and an awful experience. But they, they cheered me up. And I thought, that's something that you kind of, you, you learn. But that was... That, that was Mosul, um, a, a tough place to start filming. And then 50 miles away is Erbil, which is the capital of Kurdistan. And that's like Las Vegas almost, you know, it's got tall tower blocks, lots of lights on, um, very sparkly, very, there's quite a lot of money there, oil money. And that was just 50 miles away, and yet ISIL had never, ISIL, ISIL did not get to Erbil for some reason. You describe a house uh, that you see, uh, some strange architecture in Erbil, uh, kind of a facsimile oh, yeah. of, 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 of the White House. Yes, yeah. And, and to whom did that belong? Well, I don't know who it belonged to. In fact, there's no one else in there, but it was, it was an area called Dream City in Erbil. And, and there it says, architects will make your dreams come true. And there was this house, which was an absolute replica of the White House. But it seemed to be empty. We couldn't get access to it at all and press the buzzer and no, no one came to the door. But um, uh, next to it was um, a house which is just, it's a picture of it in the book. Oh, 
available in all good bookshops. But <laughs> it, it is the most extraordinary house because it's like every single style cobbled together. So it's got a bit of Venetian, it's got sort of um, classical, it's got Baroque, it's got Islamic architecture, each in every floor, you know, there's a different window style and all that. It is, I've never seen anything quite like it. It's like all the architectural styles ever built into one, one house. I would think probably unlivable in, but it looks spectacular. You make your way further south and uh, you end up in Tikrit, which yeah. of course is the, uh, uh, the birthplace of, of two rather famous people, uh, one being Saddam Hussein, uh, the other being Salahuddin, uh, who was also from, uh, from Tikrit. What was, the, uh, what was the mood like in, in, uh, in, in Tikrit? Uh, uh, did people still uh, uh, hold claim and, dare I say, a sense of pride to the fact that this was uh, Saddam's birth? Would this, would this deserve a blue plaque? Well, the blue plaque would have been shot to pieces, I can tell okay. you that. Um, it's a, it, was a, it was actually about the low point of the journey to Crete, because um, you get there and, and the, um, the, there's a definite feeling, um, increased security on the road and all that, as you're going to Tikrit, as if something dangerous may still happen there. And there are groups of ISIL, um, uh, ISIL fighters still around, but we didn't really see that. What you f see first of all, um, or a bit like in Mosul, I mean the first thing we saw in Mosul was a huge hospital, 1400 beds at one time, just totally blown apart during the fighting and still out of action, still useless. So in Tikrit you see these great big palaces that Saddam had built for his, um, his henchmen. And um, I mean there must be about 10 extraordinary well-built, um, beautifully designed, um, beautiful architecture ranged along the side of the, the river and all of them in various stages of destruction. So you, once again, you're confronted with the city ringed with, um, with piles of rubble. And then, I mean, something quite unpleasant happened there because we, we wanted to film in the city and, and the, in, in Tikrit there's um, um, a very, uh, quite a strong Shia militia there and they didn't want us to do anything that acknowledged Saddam Hussein and the Sunnis part in, in, in what had happened. They said, you can't see that, what we want you to, we can't go and see his old palaces, we want to show you where one of the worst things in the war ever happened. And it was a thing called the Spiker Massacre, and I, I didn't know much about it, but what had happened was that um, the, uh, sort of the anger against the way Saddam had been treated and all that led some, some Sunnis to take 1,700 Shia cadets from a nearby American base and take them out for a day's holiday or something like that. It was kind of day off. And in fact, what they did, they took them down to the river and they shot and killed all of them. And this was called the Spiker Massacre. It was the, the, uh, the base they came from was the Spiker base. And this was just, they wanted me to go down there and, and, and see where it happened and talk about that, which I, I did. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a very, very difficult, very difficult thing to do. Largely because there were, there were various armed men standing around looking very, you know, obviously, um, you know, they, they weren't pleased that we were there at all. But, but so we would tell the story. And when you get down to the river, the area where all these young men 
were shot and killed. There's sort of a few um, posters on the walls, some of the photographs of some of the uh, people left there, I presume, by their families and all that. But, it, you know, it's not being looked after at all. There's no context, there's no writing about what happened here. They're unframed. Some of them are just blowing in the wind, flapping about, bits are torn off. So in every, from both you know, the aspects of the, the victims and the aggressors, you know, there's something pretty nasty, very, very nasty about what happened there. And it was hard to, it was really hard to, to deal with that. So, so that's to greet, yeah, low point. There were, there were higher points than that. Here you're seeing so much trauma, and, and hopefully as you're coming down the Tigris, things are improving. Yeah. Um, one of the coping mechanisms in traumas is humor. Mm. And uh, did you find a sense of humor among, among the people in Iraq? And yeah, uh, definitely. Okay. Um, well, one particular case was there are a lot of um, uh, checkpoints along the road. I mean, you, you go 60 miles, say, from uh, Kirkuk, where oil was first discovered, to Tikrit. You will have to stop five times. You'll be pulled in, and if there's somebody difficult, they'll look at your papers and say, oh, we don't know about this. Get, go into that, that sort of part there, and we'll, we'll deal with your papers later. So you can be there 45, 50 minutes at each of them. And they became fairly grim, because we had a letter, apparently, I was told, signed by the president of, uh, of Iraq, saying, let these people through. And it meant nothing at all. People look at that and say, no, uh, I'm the boss here. I run this checkpoint, thank you very much. And that was pretty grim. We got to one checkpoint where, um, for some reason, there was a, an, a, an officer, a young officer visiting, and um, he thought it was extremely um, a, a wonderful, unexpected pleasure to see foreigners come to his checkpoint. And they were very nice. And he said, you, you, you're here, you come and have some tea with us. The general's visiting today. You can come. And, and having tea means losing a day's filming. That We know that. <laughs> That's what having, having tea means. It means marrying their daughters and all that. Um, but... <laughs> He was so wonderful, and he said, we've got to move on. He said, oh, well, we'll, let's have some, I'll tell you, let's have a selfie. So we had a selfie with this wonderful Iranian officer grinning away like that, terrifically smiling, and we, we refer to that as checkpoint cheerful after that. <laughs> the only one of its kind, I have to say. But there's humor, we, we met some guy, um, a farmer, who was having a terrible time, you know, two years his, his crops hadn't grown and all that, but, he used humour. I mean, not wasn't telling you jokes all the time, but you could tell that humour was something that enabled him to keep that going. The kind of bittersweet humour of here we all are, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, of, of course, there was, there was humour there. I think, you know, really to get to, to understand the humour, you've got to understand the language, you've got to understand the people. And they were a little bit sort of, apart from Checkpoint Cheerful, fairly reserved. Um, from us, apart from a school in Baghdad where the, the young kids were absolutely thought it was wonderful. Well, you know, your story about Checkpoint Cheerful reminds me of how similar it was to me flying into Heathrow uh, with a foreign passport. So, right. Said no one ever. So you get down to Baghdad and you actually are in the, the fabled green zone and, and you ha even actually meet the, uh, the British ambassador there. Yeah. 
That was strange. I mean, the green zone is very strange because I, I like Baghdad. Of, of all the cities, it was the one I felt had, well, I suppose partly because it's such an ancient city and I had books about Baghdad and stories of Baghdad, Arabian Nights and all that. And here it was, and it's got the big river, the Tigris runs through it and all that. And it's beginning to pick itself up, or was, was then. And you felt, yes, this, this is, can become a major city again. So. Well, you have a beautiful picture of the Central Bank of Iraq designed by, of course, the late uh, Iraqi uh, architect Zaha Hadid. Zaha Hadid, yes, exactly, yeah. So there's some, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big sort of, um, very significant um, uh, building for them, a sort of indication of the future. Um, but it was um, just generally Baghdad was, um, th I mean, there was culture going on there. And in fact, you're talking about humor. There was, um, beside the river, um, there were a, a crowd in this, there was a kind of museum with a garden in front of it. And these guys, and they were doing, um, they were making everybody laugh. And they were, it was a poetry slam sort of thing. So reading poetry. And everyone was roaring with laughter, and I asked, you know, what, what, why is, what are they, what's, what's the object of the humour, what, what, what are they really laughing at? I said, well, it's all about the politicians. And so they were sort of satirists, you know, and, and then once they told me that, I realised certain names came out, whoa, great laughter. So the, yes, there's, there's terrific laughter, but I don't think that answered your question. No, no, I, I, think, I, I think it was fine. I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, every time you heard the word Bush, someone threw a shoe. You make it down to Basra, so you're at the end of the Tigris, and uh, one thing that struck me is uh, as you're seeing the Shat al-Arab, which is the main yeah. waterway separating uh, Iran and, yeah. uh, and Iraq, and there's, a sign, or there's two signs, and in one direction is the airport where you're looking to yeah. leave, and the other one says the Iranian border, Yeah, and this certainly uh, elicits a, a reaction yeah. from you. Well, they're so squeezed together, and, and I realise the geography of Iraq is, it's a very, it's a slender country, quite a thin country, um, with enormously powerful neighbours, Turkey to the north, Saudi Arabia and Syria off to the west, and Iran off to the east. So it's, it's squeezed by countries which have more power and more influence, and a greater economy probably than Iraq. So there was a sort of feeling, one, one way I just felt, well, good for them, you know, they're, 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 they're somehow keeping their own identity um, together. Um, but at that point, you're, you are so close to um, Iran and Kuwait on the other side. I mean, their coast, the total coastline of Iraq is only about 34 miles. It's very, very, uh, very, very short. But anyway, it was, it was um, I mean, yeah, leaving there was, I, I did think, well, I remember we left early in the morning and very early, it was about five o'clock and yet the skies were sort of crimson or, or orange, orangey crimson, as if dawn would come early. And it wasn't that at all, it's just the gas um, burning off in the oil wells in the desert. And they cr just created this false dawn, which I thought was rather a good image of leaving Iraq, the false dawn, where there have been so many false dawns. I mean, it's got a huge amount of money um, from oil and, and gas and all that. And yet the money does not seem to have yet regenerated the country. But 
they only just they only just stopped being in the middle of a war about three or four years ago. So I suppose there's time. So you have a country like Iraq with trauma, and then of course the mirage created by the, this this this, yeah. this uh, really vivid image. Uh, you've also traveled to North Korea, <clears throat> and North Korea brings with it its own sense of mirage. Uh, what yeah. was that like? But the interesting thing is, you know, you go to Iraq and you can go anywhere and almost see anything. You go to North Korea and you can see nothing, really. I mean, they don't want you to see anything other than the things they want to show you, which is sort of modern buildings, marching feet and all that sort of stuff. So the challenge, but the challenge is to try and find a way of of getting the information on North Korea, which is it was easier in, in Iraq because people would talk to us. You know, there were there were roadblocks, but we could practically go anywhere. Um, whereas in North Korea, to try and find out what the people of North Korea, how they lived and what they were allowed to do and what the conditions were, that was really quite difficult. And the one thing you couldn't do was go there and say. We're going to, we want to see this, we want to see that. You know, we're not going to be fobbed off. We're from, well, we weren't from the BBC, actually, from Channel 5. That would have confused them. Um, <laughs> you know, they do, they do the Yorkshire farm program and all that. They're, oh, yes, good, that, uh, Yorkshire, good, you can come. Um, so, <laughs> and, uh, so we had to get under the skin somehow, and we had, we had, there's this tension. You've got a team of people, two, there were two sort of uh, guides, um, one 32-year-old man, another a 28-year-old woman. And they were really, they were very nice. They spoke English well. They were extremely friendly, extremely polite. And around them, there were five others who were from the tourist board who were a little bit more nervous, certainly for the first two or three days of what we were going to do. And you find it's kind of like the first couple of days, you don't know quite what you're allowed to do. For instance, they wanted to do a shot of me leaving my hotel and walking into, uh, towards the underground. And um, they said, he can only come that far out of the hotel. Then you'd have to stop and film the underground separately. And we didn't know why this was at all. Apparently, there was some building there that uh, I, I was, was to do with security of some kind, but it looked like any other building anywhere else. So you've got that, and then um, when I first interviewed Su Yang, the, the lovely um, lady who was our, 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 um, our guide, and we were, on, we were on the hill where the big, huge statues of uh, um, the two leaders of North Korea before Kim Jong-un uh, are, and um, I was doing an, an interview, and we talked about, I talked about family, and she said, they are family. The thing about North Korea is we are all family. We are one big family. Um, and of course, all their three leaders have, have been from the same family. But they identified completely with them. Um, so I said, well, you know, I, I come from a very happy family, um, but families always have disagreements, and someone has to give, and someone has to not give. I mean, does this happen with you? And she just, she just flummoxed, and she was a woman who could normally deal with any question. She didn't know what to do. Her eyes flicked to one side. The mind just kind of thing. Because what I was suggesting by that, a disagreement with the leaders, absolutely impossible. 
So you find someone who I later learned, this Su Yang, she'd read Jane Austen, she'd read Wordsworth, she'd read English books, but still subscribed to the fact that you could not say anything at all, um, presumably in public, but I think anyway, of, about, your, about your leaders. Do you think it was a, it was a fear or that, it, that she had no frame of reference? I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that it had never dawned on her. I mean, because that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm coming from a country where, you know, we don't have any experience of politicians having a cult-like following, so I was just kind of wondering. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> what country could that be? Well, uh, yeah. Um, no, I, I think she knew. I, I think she was well aware of what was going on and that she was having to say this. Because later, when the minders weren't all there, she opened up a little bit more. But still, I think she absolutely believed um, that they had the right system, we had the wrong system. I remember saying to her, you know, um, w w what makes our country different, I suppose, is that we are allowed to criticize our leaders. And she said, yes, well, that's what you do, and we, we don't do that, we don't need to, because they're perfect. And I, uh, you know, that jarred, I, I couldn't believe she really meant that. But I think that is the mindset. And she was one of the sort of educated elite in North Korea. So, I mean, for the rest of the people, I think they just believe what they're told. They're b everything's very shackled. You can't get on the internet. They, they don't have any internet access with the rest of the world. You can't you use um, uh, smartphones or anything like that. So, yes, they are, they are really um, like in a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of box kept away from the world. Well, like, you know, what was that movie, The Truman Show, right? I mean, that, that is the reality that's there. You, one thing that I found to be so eerie uh, that you describe is, uh, can we call it the collective alarm clock in the morning to wake up uh, oh, Pyongyang? Oh, yes, the music. Yeah. Yeah, that was really weird. I thought I was jet-lagged because I got there, and the first morning, there's this music everywhere. This is about 5 o'clock in the morning. I wasn't sure where, where it was coming from, but someone left a radio on. Um, was, was someone sort of rehearsing for a parade downstairs? But it just an hour later, it was still there. And I realized later, this is just music that they play in the morning to encourage people to have a, you know, a good, purposeful day. Get out there and do it. And it's called... Um, I can't remember something, you are great, my dear general, or something like that, or good morning, dear general. And um, quite unselfconsciously, this is played all over the city. And music is used quite a lot like that. And they're very, you know, Koreans are very good, North Koreans are very good musically, they're fantastic. And we saw some of their theater shows. But they're all run like a sort of army parade. Even five, little five-year-old kids, all, you know, they may be dressed in... in, in in the local folk dress, but they all move absolutely together. Uh, and a number, you know, 200 of them absolutely in step with each other, which is again a sort of good image of what the country is about. Everyone must be in step with everyone else. And those huge, great parades that you see in, in, um, in the square there, um, you know, they, they, they have you know, 10,000 people in the square all moving, and you look down there, and what we found was on, 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 on the floor were little signs where everyone could stand. So it was a little dot where everyone could be. So it wasn't just a spontaneous sort of crowd gathering to say, um, good morning, dear general. 
it was, uh, it was uh, done with military precision. And I think that's military precision is, is the key to, to North Korea. But you know full well that, that there's more to it than that. You just know. I mean, and, and go back to humor in Iraq. There was humor in North Korea. We had some, some uh, when we went out in the evening, had a couple of beers. They relaxed a bit more. But you, you know, sh neither of our guides could have said anything against the regime or they would have been, you know, just that, that would have been the end of their career, and perhaps even, perhaps even worse. Did they uh, ask you to tell a joke? What the one? Did they ask you to tell a joke? No, no, they didn't ask me. <laughs> no, no, no I, I, I'm really bad at telling jokes, so I would, uh, especially in Korean. <laughs> <laughs> I did a few silly walks, I thought that would be enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So speaking of which, um, first of all, your, uh, your, your, your style of journalizing is, 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 is wonderful. It's, it's just so accessible and, uh, and also um, uh, emotive. I mean, I found that, uh, especially when you were describing the devastation in, uh, in the north of Iraq, I mean, really feeling that kind of empathy. Um, I'd like to take you back a little bit. Um, it's July 1st, 2023, and um, I actually uh, have your Michael Palin diaries, 1969 to 75, the Python years uh, at home, and uh, actually read it, um, and um, you know it, it was it was I, I read it in the last week, uh, but uh, uh, you know otherwise the ten years it was sitting on my shelf uh, before that. Um, so if you don't if you don't mind, um, I mean since it is I guess a matter of public record, I can read this. Yeah, um, you wrote this. A Python read-through at Anne's. We begin by trying to do the quiz in the complete Monty Python fan book. The questions are incredibly hard, and the entire team scores only 60% on our own material. Yes, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. How many of you have scored better than 60% on... <laughs> okay, so you're not better than a Python. Uh, <laughs> read-through a little stilted to start with. Graham has a long list of suggestions, and each scene is rather heavily post-mortemed. That's kind of macabre, but okay. Uh, then we suddenly find three hours have gone by and Terry J hurries us all through. The state of the script isn't bad, but doubts are voiced about Judith's role by Terry G and Brian's. The usual arguments that they're rather dull parts, and as soon as we start to work on the Brian-Judith relationship, we lose the comedy. Indecision still over the casting of Judith. Gwen is good, but I feel Judith needs to be a tougher, stronger, more dangerous than Gwen could ever be. We need a stroppy feminist with a sense of humor to play the role. Yeah, and I was right. We did get a stroppy feminist with a sense of humor to play the role. That was Sue Jones Davis. And a rather wonderful thing happened with Sue. She was very good in the part. Had to scamper around and start naked half the time. Um, she was later on um, uh, elected to be mayor of Aberystwyth. <laughs> as happens to people who've been in films. And um, anyway, she, um, uh, Aberystwyth was one of those cities in Britain that had abandoned Life of Brian and still had done from the moment, 1979, right through till it was about 2006, I think, when she was, um, she was elected mayor. And so the first thing she did was to um, lift the ban <laughs> on Life of Brian in Aberystwyth. Uh, yes. And uh, Terry Jones and myself went up there and we all sort of linked hands and marched <laughs> to the Odeon Aberystwyth, say, yes, 
freedom, we shall overcome. Uh, but it's only on for one night. <laughs> so that's all they'd allow. But we, there's a little crack in the, uh, in the facade. Yeah. You have to start somewhere. So there's this, there's this appeal about, about Monty Python and... Uh, now I, I think I could, are we at the point of the of the uh, event that I can talk about this? Is that okay? All right. Um, You've started now. You can't stop now. I know. Yeah. I, 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 You've gone headlong. I, I'm, an, I'm an expert of rhetorical questions, by the way. So, <laughs> okay. um, you, this idea, even reading in your in your journals, your travel journals, people in the most far-flung parts of the world, uh, uh, Baghdad. Bradford, um, they, they know about, about Python and they come up to you and, and make, a, make a reference. Some places, yeah. I have to say, not in North Korea. Yeah. No one ever came up and yeah. said, you know, oh, do that parrot sketch. Well, that's because you just didn't um, go to the right places. And also in Iraq, there was relatively little um, encouragement to do Python. But yeah, I mean, it is, it, it is extraordinary. Uh, I suppose one of the, the most amazing examples is when we started, I started one of my travel programs um, around the Pacific, um, and full circle it was called, and we started on this remote island in between Alaska and Russia. And it's on the, almost on the international dateline. There's two islands. One is, has had yesterday, and the other, the dateline goes between them, so the other one's 24 hours ahead. Anyway, we go to this island, and it's, there's just a few Inuit um, living there. The Americans are very keen to try and get them to come back to the mainland where they can look after them properly. But these Inuits say, no, this rocky island in the middle of the uh, Bering Strait is where we live, and that's where we're going to stay. So we go there, and we film, and I do a piece to camera, and then we go do a walk down the hill towards um, the, the boat. They, they laid on a boat. Um, uh, which, um, a whale-skinned boat, I think it was. Anyway, but going to take us back to Alaska. And uh, there's sort of three or four of the elders of the, uh, of the Inuit community observing us quite carefully uh, as I went down the hill, you know, looking around. And um, they were always there. Wherever we were, they would appear. And finally, we got to where the boat was, and we thanked them very much for a seal-skin boat. That's what it was. Um, just about to get in the boat, one of the, the main men stepped forward and said, Hey, aren't you the guy from Monty Python and the Holy Grail? <laughs> I mean, utterly and totally unbelievable. But, you know, it's close to Alaska where they play Python all the time. The Americans love it. So obviously some of it had been picked up there. Um, yeah. did, did they quote you any lines in Inuit? No. <laughs> no, they just said it was a pile of shit. <laughs> I thought that was most, most unfair. That's roughly translating the English. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look at, looking back on, 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 on the arc of your work, uh, I mean, I don't think there's anyone who's unfamiliar with, uh, with the various roles that, uh, that, that you've taken and you've seen them uh, as, as, as a challenge. I know you and I had spoken uh, before. Uh, one of my favorite roles was uh, actually a cameo you played in a movie called The Ruttles. The mockumentary uh, about uh, about the Beatles. Um, uh, are there any roles you feel that you watch a movie or you watch a show and say, you know, I want that? Well, movies that I, things I've done. No, 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 no. Those I hope you, oh, you wanted to be in, but I'm saying yeah. others uh, that you see a role and you're like, ah, you know, I could have played that one better. 
Oh, e well, most of uh, De Niro, some of De Niro's stuff, I think. Yeah. Falls desperately short. Yeah, I thought, I thought you should have... I'd say, come on, Bobby, speed up. <laughs> is that method acting? What method is it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. You got a line, you say the line, you got yeah. to the next line. None of this, oh, oh, come on. Yeah. And then he shoots somebody. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Palin Pacino Heat. I think, I think. <laughs> Palin Pacino Heat. Uh, uh, oh, Pacino. Well, there's another one. He just gets very overexcited. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite actors were in uh, um, Dad's Army. John Lemesura is my favorite actor of all time. Uh, and actually, I did see a bit of the fast show last night, and that wonderful bit with Paul Whitehouse and um, what's his name? When they, uh, Bob and the, 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 the Lord and the, and the Shepherd. They're so funny. That little quieter bit of acting I rather like. No, you know what I'm saying. I'm being a bit ironic here. I'm the greatest De Niro fan ever. And I've met him. And, and well, I like to think I've taught him a bit. You know. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good because he has his hands full now as a new dad as well. So. Yes, a new dad. I didn't teach him that. I said, <laughs> Bobby, lay off, lay off. You're an overpopulated planet anyway. Actually, I did meet him. I'll tell you this because it, it, it'll be boring. Um, <laughs> we were f filming uh, Brazil, Terry Gilliam's film, and we were doing a scene where he actually, De Niro, is, is one of the paramilitaries who comes down and actually he shoots me through the head, which of course is one of the great things on my CV, was shot by Robert De Niro. Anyway, so we, I'm going to meet him and we, we've, we have a lunch together before shooting in the afternoon. And we're filming in um, one of those huge cooling towers in Croydon. They're not there anymore now, but it was a huge, splendid structures. And De Niro and the commanders were going to come down from there and he was going to shoot me. So we have this lunch, and, and I just didn't know quite what to say to him. You know, I, I, how do you start? Someone's your idol. Um, gosh, that film you made. So, so. And he didn't make it any easier. So a so strange kind of um, um, uh, muffled conversation in up about the weather. <laughs> and I was saying, yeah, it's a, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of foggy. I suppose that, that's London for you. No, well, actually, no. There aren't that many foggy days. There used to be. Um, it used to be very bad in the, in the sort of 50s. <laughs> the 50s, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, yesterday was, was quite, quite sunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. Sure was. And that was about our lunch. <laughs> and I come out the end thinking, I could what haven't I asked him? You know, what are I going to talk about? Please. I think, I, I think an Oscar-winning performance by the both of you <laughs> on, on that one. All right. With that, I'm sorry, but our time has come to an end. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, join me in thanking, of course, Sir Michael Palin. Thank you. Thank you.